0: Hello, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Maggie Flynn, and today I'm joined by Mark Parkinson, the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released the fiscal 2022 prospective payment system proposed rule for SNFs last week, a rule that includes a proposed recalibration of the patient-driven payment model. Given how many SNFs found PDPM a lifeline during COVID-19, I talked with Mark about whether this should worry operators. We also discussed the policy proposals ACA and Leading Age have made to address issues in the SNF sector highlighted by the pandemic, with questions about the role of better wages for CNAs, ownership transparency, and what comes next for SNFs as they emerge from the immediate COVID crisis. I am joined today by Mark Parkinson, the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Rethink Today.
1: Hey, great to be here.
0: So the first place I wanted to begin is simply with the kind of with the state of things for nursing homes across the US right now. We're obviously well past the initial round of vaccines, and the cases have been dropping significantly in nursing homes among residents. And we are still seeing some signs of an increase, though, in cases of COVID more broadly. So where would you say nursing homes stand on recovery and just their state right now as we, you know, are a few months into this new year?
1: Well, you know, where we're standing right now exactly is that it looks like the clinical nightmare is behind us, but we're still in the middle of the business nightmare. So let's first of all talk about the good news, which is the clinical nightmare. You know, as you indicated, We are past really the first three rounds of vaccine clinics. We're now into the post-clinic phase. We've seen a significant uptake in staff vaccinations. We already had good uptake among residents. And the net result is that we've had remarkable clinical results in buildings. We peaked at 33,000 new cases a week back in late December and early January. And this week's reporting has us down to 700 new cases. So we've had almost a 98% reduction in cases, and with that, of course, has been a dramatic drop in hospitalizations and, most important, a dramatic drop in deaths. Now, you are right. In the general population, we're seeing a slight increase in the number of overall COVID cases, and the few areas, most specifically Michigan, we're seeing a significant increase in cases in the general population. Our concern is that that will inevitably lead to it coming back into skilled facilities, but our hope is that we'll turn the corner and reach kind of a tipping point with the vaccines so that we can prevent what at that point would be like a fourth wave of COVID. So we think the clinical nightmare is largely behind us and we certainly hope that's the case. The business nightmare though is an entirely different topic because the wave of COVID that hit in November and December knocked nursing home and assisted living census down another significant amount, about 5% on the skilled nursing side. And so we have an enormous hole to dig ourselves out of.
0: When it comes to that, have you seen any indication at all that there might be some recovery, especially now that we are in, you know, the vaccination phase of this state of the pandemic for long-term care? Has there been any sign of occupancy recovery?
1: There has been, but it's very early uh, Mm -hmm. and way, way too early to start getting comfortable or declare victory of any kind. And just here's the data. Before the pandemic, nationwide, we were at about 80% census. About 80% of our beds were full. Immediately after COVID occurred, so within three months or so of Kirkland, we dropped about 7% down to about 73%. And, you know, we stayed very stable throughout last summer and into the early fall, we only dropped another 1% in the six months between June and November of 2020. So we were down about 8% at that point. Unfortunately, this huge wave of COVID that hit in November and December had enormous impacts on SNF occupancy and dropped it down another 5%. So we dropped down to 67% at the low. And that was in early January. For the last 10 weeks, we've seen a very small, and I would emphasize very small, increase in occupancy every single week. And it's either been two-tenths of a percent or one-tenth of a percent, hitting 69.1% in this week's report. So we're up 2% from the bottom, but we still have 11% to go. So yeah, little teeny sign of optimism. No way to know if this is a long-term trend and that you know we're going to be able to claw our way out of this uh, anytime soon.
0: Got it. And one point that has come up a lot whenever occupancy is discussed is uh, this question of whether or not diversions to the setting of the home or in the community are going to become permanent. Uh, there have been quite a few reports over, especially over late 2020 that just showed a major shift by hospitals sending patients to either the home or some other setting that wasn't a skilled nursing facility. And more recently, we had a proposal from the Biden administration with this $4 billion plan that's aimed at bolstering Medicaid coverage of long-term care that's outside institutional settings. And one thing I wanted to ask is, with that coming out towards the end of March, you know, how has ACA been thinking about that process? And do you see a path for providers, particularly skilled nursing facilities, to you know, be partners in that process rather than adversaries or pushing back on it? How do you work with that push to increase coverage outside of the institutional setting while acknowledging that for some patients, institutional care is still going to be in need?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a pretty big misunderstanding of the Biden plan, the $400 billion plan that's out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first looked at the outlines of the plan, I had this reaction that, oh, my goodness, they're, they're trying to move a bunch of people out of nursing homes. They're really <laughs> emphasizing uh, home health. And this is a very challenging and, and potentially threatening proposal mm-hmm. to the skilled nursing facilities. That's really not what the proposal does. What the proposal does is there are 850,000 people in the United States that are on home and community-based services waiting list. For the most part, these are people that are under 65, oftentimes young adults who have intellectual and developmental disabilities and enormous needs. The states just haven't had enough money to pay for them through Medicaid, so 40-plus of the states have developed a waiting list. And what most of this $400 billion does is it, it pays off the waiting list so that these folks can get Medicaid services at home. These are not typically people that we would be treating in a skilled nursing facility. Now, there is another phenomena. And the other phenomena is that, you know, we have to wonder, did referral patterns of the people that we actually do take care of, you know, the older population, have those changed because of the pandemic? Uh, And I think that the answer to that question is you have to look at our two different populations. If you look at the long-term care population, the people that come into our buildings, typically on Medicaid, and are there to stay there for the rest of their lives, I think that there is very little threat that that population will suddenly go home. And the reason for that is that these people are quite old and have many, many needs, and it's just not possible to take care of them at home. I mean, I know that you know most of the politicians out there will say, hey, if we can just spend more money on home health or home care will be able to take care of these people at home. And what I say to them when they say that is, you know, come visit a nursing home with me. Instead of just talking about this in the abstract, I want you to come visit a nursing home with me and walk through at lunchtime where people can actually see our residents. And when you do that, you realize that these people need a lot of help and just they really can't be taken care of at home. So I think that our long-term care population will recover. I think the tougher issue is the post-acute population. The people that intend to go home after they've had a nursing home rehabilitation visit, the threat is, will they just skip us or will they spend less time in nursing homes because of things that were were learned during COVID? And what we know is that there was already a decline in utilization in post-acute before COVID. And then we know that during COVID, hospitals got even more aggressive about skipping nursing homes and just rehabbing people at home. I think that what will end up happening is that the continued decline in utilization will occur. I think that was a trend that was, again, longstanding before COVID. It may be sped up a little bit because of some things that occurred during COVID, but I don't think it will be sped up dramatically. So I see a return to our long-term care census, a bigger question around our post-acute census, and just time will tell on that.
0: Gotcha. And speaking of that post-acute census, I want to use that as a springboard to sort of the other major current event that happened quite recently, the proposed payment rule uh, that CMS issued for SNFs. And one of the points in that that my editor and I were going over today is this question of recalibrating PDPM and adjusting it. It was something that CMS mentioned specifically in its release of that rule. And in the rule itself, my editor Actually, just wrote a piece on this today. CMS cites the change that it made in 2011, saying essentially that they have seen a similar situation to what they saw with the change uh, that was made in fiscal 2011 with the RUG-4 implementation. The exact quote from CMS is, Similar to what occurred in fiscal year 2011 with RUG-4 implementation, we have observed significant differences between expected snf PPS payments in case mix utilization based on historical data and the actual SNF-PVS payments in case mix utilization under the PDPM based on fiscal 2020 data. Now, CMS does acknowledge that 2020 was a bit of a different year than anyone expected for skilled nursing facilities given the pandemic. But what, I guess, are you thinking about in terms of the PDPM calibration? Has ACA had a chance to just look at that and, you know, think about how that might go? Is there anything that you've, you know, seen in it that makes you think maybe something like that 2011 cut might come back?
1: Well, it's a really good, great question. And, and, you know, you've done some good analysis on this. And I, I would also compare 2011 to, to 2021. Okay. And I'm sure that many of the listeners were in the profession in 2011. And one of the things that really struck me about the 2021 rule was just the, the entirely different tone that was taken in the 2021 rule as opposed to 2011. Mm-hmm. And I think it really demonstrates that the profession has come a long way with CMS in the last 10 years, back in 2011, the rule, the proposed rule, and then final rule was very accusatory and negative towards nursing homes, claiming that we had somehow known about this disparity in payments that would occur, this you know so-called overpayment that would occur, or that we had sort of gamed the system and there needed to be an immediate cut. And the cut was actually like 13%. It ended up at 11% some because the market basket was taken away but it was very dramatic and very draconian and very accusatory. The tone of this year's rule is quite different. I think that they realized that, you know, we are working really hard to take care of our patients under a new system. And for most of the time of that new system, we've been doing it during a pandemic. So there's none of the blame or just sort of general negativity that existed in the 2011 rule. The other thing that's quite different from the 2011 rule is that in the 2011 rule, when they felt like there was a 13% overpayment, they cut it all at once. Um, The proposed rule in 2021 is very interesting because it acknowledges that to make a recalibration all at once would be harmful to the sector, particularly to do it during a pandemic. So they offer up all sorts of different scenarios in ways that they could create a glide path that might make it easier. Now, their bottom line conclusion is that we are 5% above budget neutrality. And first of all, I would say this, when you think about the complexity of the prior RUG system and the complexity of the new PDPM system, I don't think it's at all surprising that we could have a variation in payments of 5% or so. In fact, I think it's almost somewhat remarkable that they were able to create a system and allocate a payment to all sorts of different categories and actually come that close. What we are doing at ACA is that, first of all, we really want to validate the numbers. We're not at all convinced that providers have received more than 5% above budget neutrality. I mean, as you point out, during a pandemic, it's really hard to know. A number of the folks that we took care of in 2020, 2021 have been COVID folks, people that have gotten COVID. So that makes it very challenging. So we're spending our time right now really trying to figure out if that 5% number is right. If the 5% number is right, or if, in fact, there's been some sort of overpayment, we completely agree with the, the language in the proposed rule that it would be a terrible time right now to cut skilled nursing rates, that, you know, we're still fighting for our lives and fighting for the survival of the sector, and this would not be the time to do it. So at that point, I think we would absolutely shift to one of the things that they suggest, which is, A delay or a phase in or both. So, you know, we are cautiously optimistic that we're going to be able to work our way through this. And again, we appreciate the tone of CMS and we appreciate the suggestions that they have made in terms of creating a glide path so we don't have the draconian cut like we did back in 2011. Got it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And just when thinking about the state of things for nursing homes as a whole obviously this is going to be a big part of the future this this question of any changes to the payment rule i want to pull back a little bit more even just bigger picture for a bit to talk about just some of the things that have emerged as systemic issues in the in the skilled nursing world that have been just brought to light by the pandemic and leading age recently put out some proposals on this topic and I wanted to dig into some of those proposals a little bit more because many of them overlap with some of the things that others in, you know, whether it's the media or policy or academics have brought up as things that the skilled nursing sector needs to take a look at, that the country needs to take a look at, really, to just examine and consider why are things set up this way, what needs to change. I'm thinking here particularly with regard to workforce because there's been just increasing interest in you know, looking at staffing from a number of different voices, whether they are resident advocate voices, providers themselves, regulators, again, a range of voices have called in particular for looking at workforce. And I wanted to ask about that because you actually spoke at a, at a workforce event earlier, a CNA uh Washington, and CNA pay is one point that came up quite a bit over the course of that event. And that was something I wanted to ask about because this event happened after the proposals came out. And amid the different workforce proposals that ACA and Leading Age put out, there's a range of different options for, you know, elevating the long term care workforce. I am curious, you know, do you have specific thoughts specific to the CNA role and how providers can do work to make that? an elevated different role, you know, even outside of some of the policy changes that, you know, you've called for with leading
1: age. Sure. Well, you know, I think everybody in this profession that I've ever met has a really strong feeling about CNAs. You know, I think we all just deeply respect what they do and at the same time have a nagging just Bad feeling about th- how much they're paid and, and what their careers are like and and how what a ch- what challenging lives they have and it's a complex problem but the fundamental issue in our perspective is that Medicaid dramatically underfunds the cost of care and even though we do end up talking a lot about post acute when we talk about nursing homes the large majority of residents in our buildings are still Medicaid people and it's really hard to create a great job for a frontline CNA when you're losing $20 or $30 a day on every Medicaid resident that you take. But we need to fix that. You know, we, we need to do something to elevate the status of our CNAs. And, you know, I will tell you that our, the providers out there that, that not only recognize that, but really do something about it, the ones that are very focused on employee satisfaction employee engagement, employee retention, they just do better than than people that aren't. Turnover rates are lower, quality scores are better, et cetera. Now, having said that, even the very best providers, the folks that are, you know, at the complete cutting edge of employee retention and satisfaction are having a really hard time finding workers right now. I mean, it was very hard before the pandemic because the unemployment rate was so low, and then with the pandemic, you know, we had so much, so many staff get sick and had to quarantine. We had people that that sought out other careers. And now it's just tough to find people in, in general in, to work because of, I think in part because of various incentives that are out there for people to not work. But that's really just not an, ex, you know, that's not, we, we shouldn't use that as an excuse not to elevate the profession. So, you know, I really think that when businesses are in long-term care are trying to figure out what can we do to reach the next level on quality? And what can we do to reach the next level on profitability? Spending time and resources on employee retention and satisfaction, I think, is the low-hanging fruit that's still out there in the profession. And I hope that, that providers will embrace that. At the same time, I hope that policymakers will finally figure out that we've got to make it so that folks can at least break even. And, and once we can at least break even, then the benefits and pay that we can offer the CNAs will be much better.
0: And I'm curious, since any kind of Medicaid adjustment would just necessarily take a certain amount of time to come through, even if it was immediately successful in all 50 states, and it might take a few years to, you know, get through different states, what are some things providers can do now, in your estimation, to really work on and try and address this issue? You know, things that they can do that don't necessarily involve, you know, waiting on Medicaid funding to try and elevate the role. Like maybe, maybe it's not necessarily a raise, but has ACA had any thoughts on just ways that providers can right now start working on this role, like anything specific, like an initiative or something?
1: Well, I mean, what the data indicates is that employee retention and satisfaction is related to the rate of pay, Mm -hmm. but it's not exclusively the rate of pay. And so there are many organizations that are very focused on creating employees that are satisfied and engaged that do it without increasing wages. Just providing an exam or a test or an instrument where you ask CNAs how they feel about the workplace and what can be done to make it better, just an initial round of testing will cause a leap forward in uh, engagement scores. So, you know, there are plenty of things out there that can be done other than raising wages, but at the end of the day, if we don't raise the wages as well, this will not be a profession. It'll just continue to be a career, you know, where there's an enormous amount of turnover. And the CNAs don't deserve that. And the folks that they take care of don't deserve that. So we've really got to focus on fair Medicaid rates leading to fair wages.
0: And right now, would are, are increases in Medicaid rates like the only way to get to those fairer wages? Or are there any other levers that providers could pull?
1: No, I mean, there really isn't any other lever. You know, the, the vast majority of our residents are paid for almost exclusively through Medicaid. You know, we, we can work around the edges with the Medicare payments. But, as you know, as we discussed in the prior part of this podcast, you know, those are subject to all sorts of fluctuation, too. The, the bottom line financial problem in the sector is Medicaid, and it's been that way for 20 or 30 years. And, you know, it really is time that it get fixed.
0: Got it. And the other major aspect of the proposals that I had wanted to ask about was um related to the handling, I suppose you could say, of facilities that are chronic poor performers, I believe was the phrasing in the document. Just, you know, trying to figure out how to handle these facilities that consistently do not meet the needs of, of care for the residents that are that are there. There have been a lot of different ideas thrown about, about how to do that. But one that keeps consistently coming up is this concept of ownership transparency. And that is and that is part of the solution that ACA and Leading Age propose, this idea of ensuring clear transparency of new ownership and organizations uh, behind the different uh, limited liability corporations. And I was curious whether you've got any thoughts about what steps toward ownership transparency might look like. Is this something that Providers can sort of work towards now, even if the government doesn't require it specifically? Or would it take some kind of rule or regulation to really zero in on that ownership aspect?
1: Well, I want to answer your question, but I really think that the uh, the part of our proposal that I think most aggressively approaches the problem of poor performers is the, the part that really changes the way that we deal with poor performers right now. Mm-hmm. Right now, what we do when somebody gets a bad survey is that we tend to make the problem worse. CMS comes in and, you know, they've got a bunch of surveyors in there for a period of time. And oftentimes they impose fines and sometimes those fines are outrageously high. And the providers don't have the funds to pay them. Or if they have the funds to pay them, it's at the expense of taking care of residents and taking care of staff. And so facilities just kind of go into a downward spiral. And they end up on a special focus list. And when you end up on the special focus list, you don't really get any help. You just get surveyed more. And you get surveyed so much that, you know, you can get off the special focus list if you can get two surveys in a row with just minimal deficiencies. But it's really hard because you're just getting surveyed so much. And so we really don't help these facilities. We just end up sending them into a downward spiral where they never get any better. We're really proposing a different approach where when somebody would end up on the special focus list, we do a root cause analysis to figure out what the heck happened here. What's the leadership or clinical gap that's keeping them from getting better? And then they would have access to resources to get better. And if they used those and got better, great. And they'd get off the special focus list and they'd be back in good standing. If they refused and just wouldn't cooperate and take the help that they were being offered, they might lose their license to operate. That, we think, is a much better approach to kind of the death spiral that we create right now through penalties. Now, another corollary to this, as you pointed out, is this whole issue of transparency. And while we do say, okay, it's fine, if people want to know who actually owns these buildings and what ancillary companies they own, that's fine, we don't actually think that's a solution to the problem. That's really more mollifying some of the critics out there that have this misconception that nursing home operators make a bunch of money. And they're just hiding it with ancillary companies and uh, folks that we don't know who is involved, et cetera. And we're just kind of really saying, you know what, if that's what everybody thinks, fine, we'll go ahead and we'll be transparent. And it would be, it would take place, you know, probably on like a Medicare compare type report. But honestly, that's not the solution to the problem. We think the solution to the problem is once you know somebody starts experiencing problems, to help them get better. And if they refuse to help, then they shouldn't be in their profession.
0: Yeah, I think usually when you hear that ownership transparency question come up, at least for me, I know when I want to ask it, it's usually because of seeing, you know, instances, and it's happened more than more than once it, you know, granted, these are, of course, the standout stories. So there is that to consider that they that they are the, the ones that get these kind of full deep dives. But these You know, there have been a few different stories over the past couple of years of operators that have a track record of, you know, deficiencies or what have you in the other facilities. And certainly if there is a way to help them correct those deficiencies, it should be taken. But I think what people are concerned about is that usually these operators, even with the uh, deficiencies, are cleared to take on other facilities. That is something that we saw with the Skyline Healthcare Group, which was sort of notorious. It's, right. it's an obvious example, unfortunately. But I do remember when I was first covering that particular story, it could be discovered just simply you know, by doing some Google searches. And granted, you had to go back a few pages that maybe... This operator, this one nursing home that they owned, wasn't clearing payroll in one state while they were buying facilities in another state. Right. And I think that that's what people are thinking about when they think of ownership transparency is why isn't there some mechanism to, you know, do something about the ability of someone to buy a facility right. if other ones are struggling? And I, I was curious if you had thoughts on that because I do think that sometimes. People are not terribly clear when we talk about ownership transparency. And I sometimes am guilty of this too, just kind of throwing it out there as like this concept without saying what it is that we actually mean by that. You know, is that, is there anything, any thoughts that you have about that particular type of problem?
1: Yeah, that is a tough problem to solve because the, the way it stands right now is that it's up to each state to set the criteria that are needed for somebody to buy a skilled nursing facility and get the license. And some states have you know, pretty strict criteria where you've got to jump through a lot of hoops, and other states have far fewer. And you know, what we've advocated our state execs to do is to find to hit kind of a middle ground where advocate that the state approve these transactions if the people that are buying them you know, have some experience, have the capital to keep this thing going, aren't just kind of fly-by-night operators, you know, they generally know what they're doing. But at the same time, it can't be so draconian that it takes forever and that good providers are denied because there's so many hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of looked at, is there a a model that we could adopt at the federal level? And we've ultimately concluded that it's just too complicated of a problem to try to solve at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But we completely agree with the thesis that, you know, not everybody should be able to buy a nursing home. There should be some criteria it's just important that the criteria aren't so strict that legitimate operators are thwarted from either buying or selling their facilities.
0: And the other the other question I guess that sort of ties these two components together of the points that I'd wanted to ask about is is this possibility I suppose of tying an increase in Medicaid payments to an increase in transparency. I believe it was actually something that David Grabowski at Harvard Medical School had mentioned in his presentation at the CNA event earlier this week, this this question of absolutely we need to do something about Medicaid rates, but also there needs to be a better understanding of where that goes. And given that it you know kind of combines these two topics, do you have thoughts on just that kind of approach to handling the possibility of a Medicaid increase just connecting it to transparency connecting it to you know making it clear who is behind what LLC
1: Yeah I mean we understand that we're not going to get an increase in Medicaid carte blanche with no strings told you know how it ought to be spent or where it ought to be spent et etc And so I think that that what David Grabowski is saying is that one of the strings should be that there's some transparency in ownership. What we've said in our plan is that we've learned during the pandemic that increase in infection control in buildings, usually through an infection control preventionist, and an increase in RN hours really does appear to be positively correlated towards better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so we think that the Medicaid increase should be tied to those factors you know, requirements to do those things that aren't paid for just wouldn't work right now. Mm -hmm. But if those things are required and they're paid for through a Medicaid increase, we think that could be really good for residents. And that's why it's in our plan.
0: And with regard to that plan itself, I know it's like a set of proposals that covers obviously a range of aspects. It was zeroed in on kind of the four, the clinical, the workforce oversight, you know, the structural physical plan aspect of, of nursing homes, I was curious, have you had any, have you seen anyone express interest in taking up these proposals as part of legislation? Is there any indicator that they might become part of some kind of bill or legislative package?
1: Well, unfortunately, you know, I think everybody's aware that there's no bipartisan cooperation on the hill right now. (laughs) Zero, maybe less than zero. (laughs) And one of the things that that means is that bills are not going to pass. Mm-hmm. It's not like the old days where you could introduce a bill and get a committee hearing and people would discuss it in the committee and amend it and vote it up or down and it'd go out on the floor and work its way through the process. That just doesn't happen anymore. But there are some bills that that will either pass because the Democrats are going to do them without Republicans at all. And that, that's the the infrastructure bill that will pass only with Democratic votes. And then there are some budget kind of emergency type bills that have to pass because if they don't, the government doesn't stay open. Until, and at the last minute, they always pass those bills. Mm-hmm. So our, our current thought is that rather than just having a bill introduced and have it go through the normal hearing process that really hasn't been normal now for at least 15 years, mm-hmm. um, we're going to try to get it included in either the infrastructure bill or in one of these must-pass bills. We're going to try to get parts of it included. And so that's that's the strategy that we're following.
0: I want to wrap this up by sort of bringing it back to where we started, which is the, the state of things and what comes next. You talked about how, you know, there's many, thankfully, great indicators that the clinical nightmare is ending, but that the business nightmare is still very much ongoing. You know, as you look to the year ahead, you know, what is the path forward for skilled nursing facilities out of the business nightmare of it that is still very much a reality?
1: Well, the most important data point that I look at every week is that Thursday afternoon, uh, the folks at NHSN release the data that nursing homes have submitted that week. And that data includes number of new COVID cases, number of hospitalizations, and it also includes occupancy. And it comes out at 1 p.m. every Thursday. And then our data analytics team crunches the numbers because it comes out building by building. So we aggregate that number. And usually by Friday morning, we know where we're at. Mm-hmm. And if you knew the rate of recovery of census over the next nine months of of 2021, then you would know the end of this story for 2021. If we can recover at 1% a month, virtually all providers will be able to keep their heads above water, and it'll be painful, but they'll be okay. If the recovery is a half a percent a month, there's going to be some people that aren't going to make it, but I think the majority will. If the recovery is less than a half a percent a month, we've got massive problems on our hands, because despite the, the federal and state money that might be coming, there just isn't enough money to prop the sector up forever. So the story of 2021 on the business side is entirely related to census. And the early, very, very early signs are positive, and we just need them to continue in that direction.
0: Gotcha. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and for and for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Really good to do it and a lot of fun and appreciate your coverage. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Briefing. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And for more news and insights in the skilled nursing industry, be sure to sign up for our daily or weekly newsletters at www.skillednursingnews.com. I'm Maggie Flynn, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.